I mentioned to you before that I had a disease whenever I was 19 years old that almost took my life, Rocky Mountain spotted fever from a tick bite. And I had a long recovery, uh, about 18 months. Whenever I first came home from the hospital, I, I remember I could barely move. Uh, I could move my head from one side of the pillow to the other. I could lift my arms a little, um, but I, I needed help doing everything. I had to learn how to do things over again. Needed help getting out of bed, uh, walking, everything. And, and I guess one of the worst parts was that I had insomnia. So the nights were the worst. They were horrible. I dreaded nighttime. I mean, I couldn't move. I couldn't sleep. The rest of my family, they were in their rooms asleep, and I was all alone in my room. It was dark. The nights were so long. And I remember lying there, waiting, looking at the window, hoping that, that there would be light that would start to come. And I remember how thrilled I would be whenever the horizon would be, begin to brighten. The day was coming. And it seemed like just when I thought the night was the darkest, God sent the sunrise. It was a very depressing time for me. It was the dark night of my soul. And so I have titled this message, The Dark Night of the Soul. Now that, that term was not original with me. In fact, it was first used in a poem by a Spanish mystic in the 16th century. But that term describes God's people as the book of Lamentations opens. This book is the dark night of the soul of Israel. Babylon had invaded. Jerusalem laid in ruins. God's prophet Jeremiah walked through the city and saw rubble and suffering and despair and hurt. And he sat down and wrote the city's funeral service. And it's the book of Lamentations. You may have noticed on the title slide a moment ago there was a picture on there, and, and there it is. It's the it's a picture of Jeremiah with his, with his head in his hand sitting there contemplating the destruction of Jerusalem. This was a painting by Rembrandt in 1630. It's considered one of his early masterpieces. It today hangs in a, in a museum in Amsterdam. But he uses light and dark. You'll see in the very background that smoke rising up from the city of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah, the prophet who is writing the Lamentations, sitting there lamenting with his head in his hands. I'm currently preaching through 12 books of the Bible that, that I've never preached on on Sunday morning as 18 years as your pastor. And so I'm going through those books, and this morning we're, we're preaching from Lamentations. I've never talked about it on a Sunday morning. It's a very depressing book. A lot of Christians ignore it. This morning, I want us to look, and I want you to hear the heart of Jeremiah as he pours it out to the Lord in Lamentations chapter 3, 
verses 1 through 6. Read with me. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. I want us to hear the story of Jerusalem and Lamentations. First of all, letter A on your outline, reliving the siege. Reliving the siege. It was the 8th century. God's people, the Israelites, had turned away from the Lord and they were disobedient to Him. They had grown lax in their relationship with Him. He had commanded them things. They were ignoring the commands. They, they repeatedly broke God's Word and ignored God's Word and broke His commands. They worshiped other gods. They oppressed the poor. But yet they came on the Sabbath day and, and worshiped Yahweh thinking everything's okay. But their heart really wasn't in the worship. And they thought everything was all right. So God sent prophets, Amos and Hosea and, and Micah and Isaiah. He sent prophets to tell them, look, unless you turn from your sins and stop doing these things and start obeying me and listening to me, I'm going to send another nation in to bring judgment upon you. They didn't believe him. Yeah, Lord, we're, we're your people. That kind of stuff happens to, to lost nations. It doesn't happen to God's people. I mean, Yahweh, you're strong, and their God's not powerful enough to keep those nations away. So, Lord, it would never happen here. You're mistaken. But sure enough, it did. On the northeast, the storm clouds began to gather as the country of Assyria grew powerful. I know that's southeast and that's northeast, but I'm going to turn the sanctuary around and I'll tell you why in a moment. So, southeast, rather northeast, they start to invade. And let's just imagine this morning that we are the country of Israel right here, and you are the northern part. I know it's south, but you're northern part, and the platform from here up is the southern part of Israel. Ten tribes out there, two tribes up here. So the Assyrians marched in from the north, and you are the first ones they encounter. So the army marches in 701 B.C. and begins to invade Israel and they captured and burned and killed and God's people were shocked. How could it happen in Israel? And they marched in and they captured the ten tribes of, of, of Israel in the north never to rise again. But they stopped at the border of Judah. The southern part and they went back so the northern part is in shambles and the southern parts thinking aha we're better than you God loves us more than you nothing happened to us in fact they got to our borders and went back home we can keep sinning 
We can keep doing what we want. And the reason God did not let them attack Judah is because Jerusalem's here, God's holy city. He won't touch it. And the temple is here. He won't let anything touch the temple. This platform, I preach from this platform. This, this platform's where we sing, where our leaders are. And so, so we're just a little above you, is what they thought. God won't bother us. So God sent more prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, saying, you're no better than them. If you don't turn from your ways and repent of your deeds, I'm going to send another nation in to get you. And they're going, no way. Jerusalem's here. The platform is here. It's where we preach from. The temple's here. No way. We're good. And so they ignored the prophets. Every now and then, you got a good king like Josiah that tried to bring them back. It didn't work. And finally, it's time for judgment. So in the year 606 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the country of Babylon started marching toward Israel. They went across the northern part that was charred. They got to the borders. Israel thought they'll stop. They didn't. They marched in, they destroyed the southern portion, and the beautiful city of God, Jerusalem, they devastated. They ransacked the city, they besieged it. Buildings and businesses were destroyed. Homes and walls and gates and food and water and storage bins and medical supplies, everything destroyed. And then they went to God's temple, the holy part. And Nebuchadnezzar marched into the temple and destroyed it. Burned it, took the gold vessels, confiscated them, took them back to Babylon. The holy of holies, the Israelites couldn't walk in it. It was so holy. And he marched right in, tore the curtain, took the Torah, the, the Bible, ripped it apart took the altars, crushed them, the incense, scattered it. The temple is destroyed, and God's people are shocked. He killed some of them in Jerusalem, took some others with them back to Babylon to live as slaves, and it's known as the Babylonian captivity, but many of the other Israelites stayed in Jerusalem, but there's nothing left. Jeremiah, the prophet, stayed with them. Tried to forge a living somehow. There's rubble everywhere. The roads are torn up. You have no food. You have no water. How do you live? Jeremiah tried to minister to the people who live there. It was a mess. And so... They tried, Nebuchadnezzar put a puppet king over Jerusalem, what was left of it, by the name of Zedekiah. 
Zedekiah, he just kind of did what Nebuchadnezzar told him. And so they tried for a while to keep living, but there was no food. There was no water. There was no way to make a living. And they finally said, uh, Jeremiah, we can't keep doing this. We're going to have to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. There's nothing left. We're starving to death. Let's rebel. So they mustered forces, and they rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And boy, that made him mad. And he started, got the army, real assembly army, came back in again and a second time destroyed and just ransacked what was left and it was nothing but rubble it's described in second kings chapter 25 verse 3 it says quote famine was throughout the city there was no bread for the people of god second chronicles 36 17 says the invading army had no compassion upon the young or the old or the man or the woman picture that now the book of Lamentations opens. Jeremiah is walking through the city streets, rubble. What used to be glistening limestone buildings, beautiful when the sun sets, even today Jerusalem, beautiful when the sun sets, used to be this shining, beautiful city of God, burning. Nothing's left. And he's walking through the alleyways and he's going God what has happened to your city what's happened to your temple what's happened to your people what's interesting is there there's been archaeological evidence that has uncovered portions of Israel that date back to the time of Lamentations and Nebuchadnezzar's invasion and we found some of those artifacts and it documents exactly what Lamentations describes. There were social diseases among the Israelites. There was famine. There was filth. There was public nakedness. People walked naked. They didn't have more clothes. And yes, there was cannibalism. God's people began to eat one another. And Lamentations opens. Jeremiah sat down and wrote Jerusalem's funeral. Theodore Roosevelt was president of the United States, the 26th president from 1901 to 1909. You'll see his picture there. Valentine's Day of 1884, Roosevelt and his wife Alice gave birth to a little girl. But in the childbirth, his wife Alice died. And Roosevelt grieved for his wife. The little girl lived, and so they named the little girl Alice after her mother. But Roosevelt grieved so much over the loss of his wife that he no longer wanted to even remember the day. He, he didn't talk about her anymore the rest of his life. He never mentioned his wife Alice ever again. His little girl, whom he named Alice, he wouldn't call her by name. He called her sister. He never celebrated her birthday. He never celebrated Valentine's Day ever again. He just wanted, the grief was so hard he just didn't want to think about it 
Jeremiah took the opposite approach. He wrote Lamentations in such a way you would never forget it. He wrote it in a way that God's people would always remember it. He wanted them to remember what happened, the horror of it, and why it happened, so they would never, ever forget the grief. So, let's look at the book, letter B on your outline, about Lamentations. Lamentations is a series of funeral dirges. Now, a dirge, we don't use that word a whole lot anymore concerning funerals, but a dirge used to be whenever, now that it's called a dirge, any kind of sad song that's sung at a funeral, used to, whenever you walk to the cemetery, everybody walked together, they walked very slowly, and they would sing a song walking there. Very, they'd walk very slow, the song would be very slow, it'd be very somber, it'd be very sad, and it was called a dirge. And so, Lamentations is a series of funeral dirges goes for five chapters of the five chapters in Lamentations four of those are acrostics an acrostic is you take like a letter of the alphabet and the first word begins with A and the second word begins with B and the third word begins with C he did that with the Hebrew alphabet the first word begins with A for Aleph and the second word B for Beit and then the third word, G for Gimel, and then Dalit, and on through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so each word begins with that. Four of the five chapters. The chapter three, which we're reading this morning, 66 chapters, so every third verse begins with the acrostic letter of the alphabet. Why did he do that? Well, some theologians say the reason he did that was to show Israel you have sinned from A to Z. Okay, maybe. But there's a greater reason why he did it. He did it as a mnemonic device so they could memorize it. You see, it's easier to memorize when it's an acronym. And so he wrote it in such a way that the Israelites would memorize the book of Lamentations and never forget the horror that came and they disobeyed God. So, the Jews have memorized it. You, whenever you go to Israel today, the Wailing Wall is there, which is the wall closest to where they felt like the Holy of Holies was before the temple was destroyed. And so they will go to the Wailing Wall, and, and Jews, you will see them today at the Wailing Wall reciting the entire book of Lamentations. On the, the 9th of Av, which is the Jewish calendar, it's, it's corresponds to our July, late July, early August, they, they read lamentations aloud, all Orthodox Jews, because they, they don't want to forget it. The book is designed for you to memorize it. And as Jeremiah writes, the book was originally called Ikah, which in Hebrew meant how. How could this happen? Look, how in the world? It's the name of the book. And then later in the Septuagint, it was called Lamentations. The word lament is a, is a very deep, grief-stricken cry. Jeremiah, as he writes, seems to have been an eyewitness to the invasion of the army and an eyewitness of the people walking around 
weeping and crying and starving. He seemed to be an eyewitness because Lamentations is written in the first person. And, and the emotions are very raw, the book. And it shockingly writes. I know it's, it's not good, but I'm going to share anyway with you because it's recorded in Scripture. Some of it's hard to hear, be warned. But here's what he writes. I saw the soldiers marching in Babylon. And I watched as they bludgeoned our soldiers to death. And I heard children in the streets walking their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth because they were so thirsty and so hungry. And they were crying, Mom, I'm, I'm so thirsty. I'm so hungry. Where's some bread? I'm sorry, we don't have any bread. And the child just sitting down weeping. In chapter 4, verse 10, he says, I saw even the most compassionate mother going to the kitchen, getting pots, boiling water to prepare to put her child in there to boil and eat her child and he describes this the whole book wow nothing but pain and suffering destruction and heartbreak and grief God's people eating their children because they're hungry. How can anything good come from this? How, how can any light come into that darkness? We'll go to letter C, our text. Imagine this morning you're in a dark room, total pitch dark. Maybe you're in a cave where no light gets in, no light at all. Can't even see your hand. And just imagine someone strikes a match and the brightness that comes when everything's illumined and the darkness is dispelled. That is the exact picture of chapter 3. Because in the midst of the darkness and cannibalism and heartache, in the midst of everything going on, chapter 3 is a light in a darkened room. And there's hope. There's hope. Listen to what he writes, verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of God. 
Folks, right in the smack middle of the most depressing book of the Bible, there's a verse that you've quoted, a, vo- a verse that you have claimed, a verse that's been hope to you, and it comes right in the midst of hunger and filth and nakedness and cannibalism, and it has been hope to you and me. Your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. I remember as a little boy, I didn't know the background. I didn't know the background to this. But I just knew that passage, God's mercies are new every morning. Man, he's good. Praise God, he's faithful. And I didn't realize it was in the context of such darkness. Thomas Chisholm was born near Franklin, Kentucky in 1866. There's his picture. He is a smart guy. He, he started teaching school at the age of 16. School teacher. And, and Chisholm uh, there in, grew up in Franklin, Kentucky, and whenever he was 27 years old, Franklin had a citywide crusade, citywide revival, and the powerful H.C. Morrison came to preach. He preached, Thomas Chisholm was sitting out there, he prayed to receive Christ, he was convicted by the Holy Spirit, prayed to receive Christ, and he turned his life over to Jesus and everything changed. He was a Methodist, and he he wanted to be a Methodist preacher. And so he went into ministry and he preached for a while, but his health was so bad, he had to quit preaching, it broke his heart. He wanted to be a pastor, he didn't have the health to do it. And so then he became a life insurance adjuster and didn't have the health to do that. And one job after another, he worked for a while and had to quit. Worked for a while and had to quit. And he was in poverty because he wanted so desperately to, to work and preach and live. But his health was terrible. Thomas knew the goodness of God. And he wanted to write a poem. He was a poet. He wanted to write a poem about the goodness of God, so he went to Lamentations chapter 3. And he went to the, saw, the, the, the part, the lament about God's goodness. And, and here's the poem that he wrote. Later it was put to music. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, love. Pardon for sin, peace that endures, thine own dear presence to cheer, to guide. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow blessings all mine ten thousand beside 
You sang Thomas Chisholm's poem just a moment ago. And you just kind of slept through it, didn't you? Here was a man who had everything go wrong. And he wrote of the faithfulness of God. You see, it's in the darkness, the most challenging times of life, when God sends you his greatest light. Life is not always sunrise, daytime. Sometimes life is darkness, grief. But it is in those cathartic moments that we realize God, we experience God in a unique way, and he becomes dear to us. It was in those nights of, that I hated so much that God became dear to me. Eight hundred years after Lamentations was written, a man one day was walking along the Galilean hillside, and he was teaching, and there was a great crowd listening and one of the things he said was, Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. So how do the godly mourn? How do godly people grieve? This is the way Jeremiah grieved. The Lord is my portion. I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. My soul seeks him. It is the good one that should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I know some of you know Charles Colson. Uh, he was a special advisor to Nixon, 1969-70. You'll see his picture there. He was, uh, he was Nixon's hatchet man for Watergate. He burglarized, he and six others, burglarized the Democratic National Committee headquarters. He lied, he defamed, he covered it up, he was found guilty. He was sentenced to seven months in Maxwell Federal Prison in Alabama. Three years later, Charles Colson became a born-again Christian. He trusted Jesus as Savior. His life changed, and today... Charles Colson is a strong witness for Christ. He's involved in prison fellowship. He's involved with Christian worldview teachings. He, is, he has the Breakpoint radio commentary. And Charles Colson said, I am so thankful for Watergate and going to prison because if neither one would have happened, I'd not be a Christian. I'm so thankful for Watergate for prison, the dark night of his soul, because he said it was there, there that I found the light of Christ. And folks, many of you have found the same to be true. Look around you. I'm talking to a room full of people some of you have been through a lot. I, I've helped some of you bury your spouse. 
And I've helped some of you bury your children. And a couple of you give you your grandchildren. You've seen heartache, heartache, and hurt. Some of you have been through chemo. And some of you have had suicide in your families. Been there with you. Some of you have kids in prison. Some of you have been through divorces. Some of you have been abused. Some of you have gone through depression. But folks, God's mercies are new for you every morning. They have been. We're a grieving people, but we are a hopeful people. As Jeremiah said, yet I have hope. Got an email this week from one of you. You said, Pastor, I've been here as long as you. You've known what I've been through. And I just want to thank you and the church for always being there for me. And my response was, we love you. And it's been our privilege to walk with you during the most challenging times of your life. Friends, you'll not remember people you laugh with, but you'll never forget people you cry, you cry with. Because it's in the darkest part of the night God sends the sunrise. He's faithful. His compassions are new every morning. You have a good day.